All right. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Wow, great worship set this morning. That was awesome. All right. Hey, I'm glad you're here. I hope everybody enjoyed the new year. My name is Adam. I, I work on staff as the pastor of Student Ministries. And if you were here last week, we talked about repentance and sin. So thanks for coming back because you get me again. Hey, we're in a, a, a fairly new series that we're calling Matthew Jesus Stories. And we want to learn more about who Jesus is by reading Matthew's gospel. The birth of Christ that we celebrate uh, at Christmas time in December is something that we celebrate all year here at Mission View. It's not just an isolated event, but it's part of a larger grand narrative that we read in, in this book about God and his relationship to all of us. And Matthew shares the account of Jesus's life specifically through the lens of of Jewish history, and he often uses the full weight of the, the Old Testament in this book to share certain themes and make certain points, and so that's why we're reading Matthew. Additionally, the hope is that as we look more at Jesus, we'll begin to look more like Jesus. So there are practical things as we look at Jesus's life that we will take away that hopefully will influence our lives daily. If you were here last week, we uh, ironically started by talking about John the Baptist, interestingly, not Jesus. Uh, Jesus was, uh, his, the detail of his birth was, was written in, in Matthews 1 and 2, and then uh, by the time we get to chapter 3, it's about his cousin, John, which at first uh, to me seemed very out of place, but then when we learned uh, about John, what we learned about him was he acted as a sort of divine uh, herald. Uh, a couple people came up and criticized me for calling him Jesus' hype man. He acted as sort of a, a, a divine herald. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, it, it quotes uh, uh, Isaiah 40, talking about John preparing the way of the Lord. And essentially what happens is John is coming around saying, hey, Jesus is coming. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is coming, here's what you need to know. And it's, it's strange that it's not like uh, what you might expect to find in a, in a Hallmark card. He's not saying, hey, here's what you need to know, God loves you. While that's true, that's not the message that he brings first and foremost. The first thing that he says is, repent. See, the word gospel, which we hear in church context most of the time, means good news. But if we're going to talk about the good news of Jesus we need to first talk about the bad news of sin. At the beginning of this book, it talks about how God, holy, and the word holy means set apart, and good, and perfect, and morally excellent, and pure, and right, and righteous, created all things, including you and me. But creation, the creation chose to rebel against God in the third chapter way back in the beginning of this book. And ever since then, mankind has been separated from God because a good and perfect and righteous God doesn't participate with what we call sin. And sin, as it, at its core, is an act or an offense against the holy God, his laws, his statutes, his commands, what he, what he desires of us that are detailed in, in this book. And so therein lies the bad news. But it is vital to understand this if we're going to look at Jesus. It's vital to know this if we're going to look at God and his relationship to us. Uh, this year for Christmas, uh, with the student ministry, we did a white elephant gift exchange, uh, which is one of my favorite things to do every year because 
Students are way better at a white elephant gift exchange than adults are. Uh, we tell them, hey, bring, uh, we spend $5 or less and bring something wacky, something crazy, something cool, something disgusting, whatever. We have kids like rummaging around in their pantries five minutes before they come. For Last year, I won a can of beans. <laughs> this year, uh, one student came out with, uh, actually, it was one of you two. One student came out with a three-foot lava lamp. And then some, some other student, he was new. It was his first day. He came with a, he won a brick. Oh, it was awesome. He just got a brick. I got um, Crest Pro Health fluoride toothpaste. Um, you know, which you win some, you lose some. And I was disappointed, sure. But then I, I imagined, what if that morning I had woken up and I, I rolled over in bed and looked at my wife, and she's just looking at me. And this is how our mornings go, by the way. And she just says, Adam? I said, yeah. She's like, I love you. I said, oh, I love you too. She says, Adam, you are amazing. You're really good looking. You, you're just really talented in a lot of ways. This is how our mornings always are. And uh, I was like, you know what, Emily? You're great too. Thanks. And she says, there's this one thing, though. You, for all of your splendor, sometimes, and I don't, I don't mean this to offend, I, I just want to help you out, sometimes you have bad breath, which really would take the wind out of my sails in, in the morning like that. But if that happened, this gift would surprisingly mean a lot to me uh, suddenly in that white elephant gift exchange. Uh, Suddenly, this has become probably the most valuable thing in the room to me. Understanding and even acknowledging what could very well be bad news, uh, Adam, you have stinky breath, uh, could totally change how I acknowledge and accept a gift. So what happens is John goes around uh, baptizing people as they recognize their sinfulness and their wickedness before a good God. Right, this is the beginning of Matthew chapter 3. And what, what is next is really interesting. Jesus finally comes on the scene. And he comes to be baptized by John. And this, this seems strange too. And we, we didn't have time to cover this last week. But I want to touch on it briefly. And uh, even John says, wait, this seems weird. Well, I sh shouldn't you baptize me? This, this doesn't seem right. And they talk and argue for a little bit about it. And then eventually uh, John relents and he baptizes Jesus. And then the it says the, the heavens open up and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus and God the Father states and shouts, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And what this strange episode illustrates at the end of chapter 3 is that Jesus, who is the Son of God, has become flesh. It's the same thing that's going to be shown throughout the whole book of Matthew. And like the rest of the people that were observing John's baptism, he acknowledged that at its core, sin is the issue that is keeping humanity from God. But he was also indwelt with the Holy Spirit and pronounced as the beloved son of the Father, and Christ heals what he assumes. And he joins in the baptizing, not to say that he was sinful, because he wasn't, but to identify with the humanity that he would eventually redeem. 
The creator has chosen to be with the creation so that the creation can be with the creator. And all of this is a backdrop to our passage this morning. So go ahead and open up. We are in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. It starts with uh, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. Then the devil left them, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, this is God's word. I personally like to have a road map of where we're going, so if you would like to take notes or something like that, I have three words that are going to help us as we examine this text, all right? Three words. Temptation is the first word. Salvation is the second, and sanctification is the third. Temptation, salvation, sanctification. All right? Let me pray as we get into it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn more about who you are, more about your relationship to us as we study in your word. I pray that as we look at the life of Jesus, we are more than just inspired and and motivated to, to live well, but we acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Pray that you would help us to read and study in a way that lets us to uh, change and, and live lives that are, uh, that are glorifying to you. But uh, I also pray that you would help us to, to worship you daily, to serve you daily. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn more about who you are in your word this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, temptation. Temptation is first. I, I realize that temptation, salvation, and sanctification, these all sound like very Christianese terms. Uh, these sound like very churchy words. Uh, and as I was preparing for this message, I thought, hey, I should go ahead and define each one. And then I, I thought about it more, and I, I, I realized, does, does temptation really need defining? I don't know when I was first introduced to this word, but I know temptation has been a very present reality in my life for about as long as I can remember. I have two nephews, and all it takes to see temptation at work is to tell them to not do something. Don't eat this cake. Don't touch this wet paint. Don't call daddy stinky, which sometimes you know, works in my favor if I want to get something done. And there might not be a better time to talk about temptation in the year than right now. Uh, A lot of people watch TV on New Year's Eve and see all sorts of ads uh, 
And it's amazing how well-placed these ads are. It's like New Year's Eve was sponsored by Weight Watchers and Planet Fitness and all these other things that we make resolutions for. By the way, this year I decided that my resolution is going to be one uh, of getting healthier like everybody else, but I'm going to do it by drinking less soda. Uh, But now we're a week in, so how's everybody feeling about their resolutions? So maybe I'll just have, you know, a soda on the weekend. Or maybe just one soda a day. Or maybe Mountain Dew doesn't count as soda, it counts as tea. <laughs> I would love to see ads about this time of year, just one week through January, that, that really uh, play to how we're feeling now. Uh, in fact, I asked Jordan, our graphic designer, to make up a few for us. So why don't we go ahead and look at this one. Can I have a salad? (laughs) We were talking about, uh, in the office, we were talking about ways to exercise our strength of will when it comes to temptation. And the the best idea that somebody had was to drive through the drive-thru and not order anything. (laughs) Somebody else said, bake a cake and then throw it away. Temptation doesn't really need defining because if you've made a resolution and you are a week in, you realize that it's part of being human. Temptation doesn't need defining because we all experience it all the time. And these are kind of some specific silly examples. I mentioned earlier that throughout the whole book, Matthew's illustrating that Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, has become flesh and dwelt among us. And so when this text opens up and says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, it doesn't mean Jesus went away for a while to have a chat with Satan. No, no, no. Jesus isn't God who happens to look a little bit like a man. He isn't God with a mask on. He is somehow fully God and fully man, and part of being fully man means being fully tempted just as men are, just as we are. Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. I feel like this text doesn't leave a lot of room for... uh, saying that Jesus wasn't tempted, who in every respect has been tempted, just like we are. So how was he tempted? I believe that, that in this passage, in Matthew 4, it, it's exemplary, but it's not necessarily exhaustive. And what I mean by that is Jesus experienced more temptation in the desert than just these few that we have recorded. Likewise, I believe he experienced plenty of temptation outside of the desert as he continued in his public ministry. I believe there are times where Jesus was uh, tempted to use what he can do for his own gain, but elected not to. I believe there were times where Jesus was tempted to perhaps seek another way out, uh, of redeeming creation outside of the cross. In fact, if you look at and read what it says in the Gospels about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he is betrayed, he says, Father, if you would, please let this cup pass from me. I think this is a unique passage, but I also believe that we can see and learn quite a bit from it. 
Uh, in the desert, I think Jesus was tempted in a few ways. I'll give you three, and I think these are three ways in which we are also tempted. Ready? Here we go. Physically. Physically. I love chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's it. That's the whole verse. <laughs> I like it because it's so candid. I, I, that'd be a great memory verse. You know, learn it with your family at the dinner table. I like it because it's so candid, but remember, Jesus is experiencing the same humanity that we do. Some of us get hungry after 40 minutes. <clears throat> and know that the, the first temptation that Satan presents to Jesus has to do with addressing his present condition. Satan, I want to tell you all this, Satan is relevant. Satan is relevant. When, when the devil wishes to tempt you, He's not going to use some archaic means that means nothing to you. Consider technology. Consider the way technology has advanced since this point in time and the ways the devil uses technology to tempt us. Enemies of God are often surgeons who will use exactly the most dangerous tool at the most dangerous time for you. If you feel like you're prone to gluttony, you bet that food is going to be a temptation for you. If you're prone to drunkenness, you feel like, uh, I bet you, alcohol will be a temptation for you. If you feel like you're prone to lust, sex will be a temptation for you. If you're prone to slothfulness, your pillow will be a temptation for you. The physical side of temptation feels good. I once sat in a, an adolescent psychology class where we talked about uh, issues that face young people today. And uh, one of the things we were talking about in this particular session was, was uh, drugs. And our professor asked the class, hey, why are drugs so dangerous? And uh, the class, you know, gave a variety of answers about ruined relationships and impaired driving and, and the way it, it changes your, your body and and all of these were correct, but one student who had expressed previously in the class that drug use is part of his history and part of his testimony raised his hand and said, they're so dangerous because they work. Physical temptation can be nice, but fleeting and temporary. I don't want anybody to think that anything physical is bad. No, no, no. Food is a good gift from God. Drink is a good gift from God. Sex is a good gift from God. Rest is a good gift from God. But when we place anything above God and allow it to supersede him, what we are doing is succumbing to, te to temptation. There's a passage in, in 1 Corinthians, actually a, a few chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, where uh, uh, newer believers and older believers are arguing about whether or not it's okay to eat a certain kind of meat. And this meat was used in sacrifices to idols, to false gods, and they're arguing about this. And ultimately, they landed on saying, there's nothing wrong with eating this meat. It's false gods. They don't exist. They're not real. Uh, but we recognize that for some people, their conscience would dictate that that's not okay for them. And for them... Don't eat it. And they, it talks a little bit about not causing your brother to stumble. So if you believe rightly that it's okay to eat this meat, don't do it in front of your brother. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. A second way that I think 
We are tempted as emotionally. Emotional temptation, I believe, is a little bit of a slower burn. There was a a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow who uh, came up with something that we now call uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And it's been used in all sorts of contexts from biology to business management and all sorts of things. And essentially, he believes that human needs operate as, as a sort of pyramid, And at its base, the most foundational, fundamental human needs are physiological. Food, water, air. We need these first. But traveling up the pyramid, we get to next safety and security, shelter, clothing. Further up is is love and and self-esteem. And then even as you get further up, it goes to ego. And they put self-actualization up at the top. And I think... Part of humanity includes being tempted in these ways that go beyond just that base foundational level of the physical, and they travel up the pyramid. And I think we even see that uh, as the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Notice he first starts with his present condition, the physical, but then he goes to talking about safety and security. Hey, you say that God is going to keep you safe and secure. I want to question that. Further up, he, he prompts Jesus to consider uh, his, for lack of a better word, I'll say his inheritance, what is rightfully his in terms of the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. I think Satan kind of travels up this pyramid, and so I think it's true with us. There isn't just temptation that remains with food and drink and sex and rest. It could include uh, greed. It could include envy. It could include bitterness, Perhaps temptation on an emotional level includes questions of our identity. One of the things I find interesting about the first two temptations recorded here is that Satan begins with, if you are the son of God. If. As if the previous chapter didn't end with God coming from a cloud and announcing, this is my son whom I love to everyone. Emotional temptation could be a question of identity. We're often tempted to forego our identity in Christ in place of one that allows sin to thrive. God says we are children of the king, and and Satan says that we're nobody, we're nothing. God says that we are valuable, and Satan says that we're worthless. God says that we are cared for, and Satan says we are forgotten. God says that we are redeemed, and Satan says we're trash. And as long as we fluctuate on our identity, we will allow temptation to come creeping back into our lives. Let me give you a few examples. If I went around always talking about how I identify as an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, that's just who I am then alcohol is going to have a much greater sway over me. Oh, but it's who my father was, and it's who his father was, and it's, it just runs in the, in the swing family. That may be true. All of this may be true, but it cannot supersede who you are in Christ. Or maybe it has to do with sexuality, and we could argue about sexuality all day, about nature versus nurture. That is, like, is, is it something... Uh, natural, inherent within me. I was born this way, and my sexual agenda that is different from what God desires for me, I was born with, so therefore it must be okay. Or, oh, well, it was a product of the environment in which I grew up in. Neither of those are acceptable excuses for sin, regardless of the root cause. If you find your identity completely in your sexuality, instead of being a child of God, of course, sexual temptation will follow you everywhere you go. 
Or maybe we had tragedy befall us in our youth and we, we live our whole lives identifying as victims. Or maybe we experience persecution of some kind and always expect everyone else to owe us something. No matter where we were born, where we come from, what happened to us, what we've been through, we can't allow the temptation of identity in Christ to be uprooted. In questioning our identity, Satan is essentially saying, did God really say... Did God, really, did God really say that alcohol isn't awesome? Did, did God really say that uh, you can't choose to, to, to love and participate in sex with whoever you want? Did God really say that you're not supposed to go and live your life according to your own pleasures? We've seen Satan do this before. In fact, that's the root cause of all this. It began with Satan prompting Adam and Eve with, did God really say? Spiritually is another one. Spiritually is the third way we are tempted. This is where it gets religious. So if, uh, in the second temptation, you'll notice that uh, Satan wraps his words in Scripture. He quotes scripture, and that, that should make us a little nervous. A friend of mine works as a comedian in Chicago, and uh, he is very good at prompting crowds to think about cultural issues while laughing their heads off. And I asked him one time, I said, how do you do that? And he said, you know, it's like giving a dog a pill. And he told me that he used to wrap his dog's pills in cheese uh, so that his dog would eat it. Satan wraps lies in little bits of palatable truth. In the third uh, temptation, is it true that Jesus was the rightful owner of everything that he could see as creator? Yes, it absolutely was. Did he need to worship Satan to get it? No, he did not. Is it true that God desires good things for us? Yes, it is. Romans 8.28, for uh, God will, um, excuse me. Uh, oh my gosh, what's Romans 8.28? Somebody help me out. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Thank you. It's mind blanked on, uh, on that passage. Does that mean that our lives are going to be without suffering? No, it does not. No, it does not. When we're spiritually tempted, we twist scripture to fit our agenda, and we twist church to fit our preferences, and we twist God to fit our desires and seek to put them in our pocket. All right, this is temptation, okay? Let's move on. We're going to go to salvation. I want to do more than just acknowledge that temptation exists, okay? Here's why. Jesus gets it. The stuff that John mentioned about sin and repentance, Jesus has a front row seat. And I'm certain that Jesus was tempted here in this passage to first work independently of God for his own gain. Second, to, to question God's motivations of security for him. Third, to compromise God's promises and forsake them for lies. And all of these things are in my life too, and I'm sure that they're in yours if you're a believer. But here's the difference. Jesus wins. Jesus doesn't 
succumb to this temptation as we do. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Where humanity fails, Jesus succeeds. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And I don't want to look at this chapter merely as an example uh, to follow of how to avoid temptation. We'll do that in a minute. But I want to recognize that we, we can't last. In, in this life, in, in the human life, we have failed, and we continue to fail every day. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we try, sure, yes, we try. We don't, we don't want to bend to sin and give up to sin, but we are still sinners at our core. But then Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus isn't just an example in the wilderness. Jesus is the victorious one. He took what it means to be human, and he, he conquered it. He took the weight of, and shame of sin, and he buried it into the ground. And then when he rose from the dead, he showed that he wasn't just a willing participant, but a warrior and a king who was beyond willing and capable of healing the humanity that he assumed. Salvation is being given the free gift of eternal life that we don't deserve and not getting the punishment that we did deserve for sin of separation from God and it's exemplified in the desert. Sometimes we think that if I could be a good enough parent or a good enough student or, or be generous enough with my time or give enough to various charities or be a good enough employee or employer, or if I just did enough, I prayed enough, I, I read my Bible enough, I went to church enough, I, I did enough good things that maybe, maybe that'll get me to heaven. Maybe that will, that will be able to surpass all of the temptation that I have, I have fallen to. Maybe that will, maybe God will look at my life as some sort of ledger of good versus bad, and maybe he'll give me a, a curved grade, but, but that doesn't happen. Sin is damning. Sin is separation from God forever. But salvation is the free gift of God so that none of us can boast in our work. In a moment, when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are made in the right before God. The word that we use for that is justification. We are made in the right before God, but we are also made holy. In a moment, we are sanctified. We are made holy. Yet at the same time, <laughs> it's a lifelong pursuit though, isn't it? When you become a believer, temptation just doesn't go away. So how do, we, how do we pursue holiness? Temptation is everywhere. Satan is relevant. Satan is perseverant. We see him continue to come back. Jesus doesn't dismiss him once. It's several times that he comes back. Satan is knowledgeable. He, he knows his scripture. So how do, how do we pursue holiness? Are we equal to the task? Here's some, here's some practical ways. Here's some practical ways to combat temptation and pursue holiness. Number one, no scripture. No scripture. Can we apply it to our lives? Do we know the context and the heart behind God's word? Will scripture remind us of what is true? 
Jesus at one point in, uh, in, first John, said, uh, in John says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Trust God. Don't be swayed by, oh, did God really say? Here's another one. Know your identity. I had a friend who every time he, he left the house, his parents would say to them, hey, hey uh, Benjamin, when you go out today, remember who you are and whose you are. Are we secure in who we are as beloved children of God? What that includes is recognizing our sinfulness before God, but also knowing that we have been made in the right with God. It means recognizing weaknesses and tendencies, yes. Acknowledging our temptations, but not letting them become our identity. One of the best ways to help know Scripture and know your identity is to have an accountability partner, somebody that will keep you accountable. So when you are tempted to say, you know what? You know what? Maybe I'm just a porn addict. Maybe that's just who I am. Or maybe I'm a cheater. That's just who I am. You can have somebody who will combat and contest you, who will point you to God's Word to know who you really are. Here's another one. Know your way out. Know your way out. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You may need to participate, however, in creating your exit strategy. You may need to participate in creating your exit strategy for sin and temptation. Here's what I mean. Uh, later in this book, as we continue reading, uh, we're going to see, uh, we're going to read a part where Jesus begins to talk about temptation and sin. And he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And these sound very serious. But part of your exit strategy might mean that you cut off your means to sin. You cut off your means to temptation. For example, if you are tempted to look at things on the internet that you shouldn't, it might mean getting rid of the internet. Uh, I've discovered that the most effective tool I've ever seen for somebody who struggles with uh, sexual temptation on the internet is a bucket of water that they throw, they threw their phone in. That is a very permanent, pretty permanent solution. Is it crippling? Yes, it definitely is, but so is getting your hand cut off. Uh, there are, um, I saw a couple diets that people are trying for the new year that are entirely based around not what you eat, but how many times you walk by your fridge. Their whole diet's based on that. But it's a really interesting thing to note that sometimes sin and temptation has to do with your access to sin and temptation. <laughs> know your way out. <clears throat> Work to develop an exit strategy. And these things all kind of weave together. Do it with your accountability partner. <clears throat> And the last one is know your power. That sounds sort of hippie, doesn't it? Know your power. Maybe it should say God's power. Here's why. The same Holy Spirit that was with Christ in the wilderness resides in each and every believer. 
The same Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity that was with Jesus, is with believers now. You will not ever outwit or outsmart the devil. But the Holy Spirit can. You have someone in your corner who is able to do immeasurably more than you are. Rely on God and not yourself. And these things all weave together. Work alongside someone to acknowledge, hey, these are my tendencies to succumb to temptation. What can you do? How can we come up with some sort of plan? Maybe your, uh, your plan needs to include repentance. Maybe it needs to include going to someone that you have sinned against. Maybe it needs to include acknowledging uh, things that you've done wrong in your life, ways that you have failed God and failed others. Maybe it needs to come from a place of deep-rooted, deep-seated, heartfelt prayer of crying out to God, acknowledging your sinfulness before him, and yet also acknowledging the fact that you have been saved through Jesus. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Uh, in a minute, um, if we could have, uh, if the elders are here, if we could have some of the elders uh, come come down front as this song is going. Uh, normally we would have, we have a prayer team, but Noni Nisley cut her foot on some equipment this morning, so she had to, she had to run out of here. Uh, if we could have some elders come come ahead, and if there is something that you would like to pray with them about, they will be more than happy to do that. Uh, perhaps it is, acknowledging temptation and sin in your life. Perhaps it is recognizing your sinfulness before God and your need for a Savior. I would encourage you to do that this morning. Let me pray and then we'll worship together. Lord, you are good. Lord, there's a lot of ways we can look at this passage, a lot of examples we can read. We're encouraged by by Jesus's combating of temptation with scripture. We're encouraged by his perseverance and we want to use these things as examples to combat temptation in our own life, yes. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize our wholehearted need for a savior. As sinful beings at our core, we could never do enough to earn our way to you and so in taking care of the problem, you've, you've come to us. Thank you for a fact that we have Jesus, our Savior, a high priest who is able to identify with the things that we experience and we go through every day. This gives me comfort and confidence that as I go before God at the end of my life, I can say, Lord, I, I am not worthy. I have failed, but Jesus has won. Pray that you would help us to recognize this in our lives. Amen.